0: Welcome to the Make Books Travel podcast. I'm your host, Marlene Seegers, co-founder of Two Seas Agency, a boutique literary agency based in Ojai, California. Join me and take a glimpse behind the scenes of the international publishing world through my conversations with key players of the industry. My guests all have one thing in common. They make books travel. For instance, from one language to another... From idea or manuscript to published book, or from page to screen. Find out how they do it, and why. Thank you for listening, and now on to today's show. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Makebooks Travel Podcast. Usually, I give a short introduction on the person that I'll be interviewing on this episode. But as you're about to find out, it is a seemingly impossible task to do so for today's guest, as he wears a multitude of hats. So I'm just going to let him speak for himself. Here's my interview with Laurence Schimel. Today's guest is truly one of the most, if not the most multifaceted people I have spoken with on the podcast, writer, publisher, and translator, Lawrence Schimmel. Lawrence, welcome. Thank you. I think the three job descriptions I'd mentioned just now of writer, publisher, and translator still don't do you justice. Um, I think we can also add rightseller, an international keynote speaker, perhaps some more to that list. And I'm sure we'll dive into that later on. But um, can you first briefly introduce yourself and outline your professional career so far?
1: Well, I would also add reader, and I think that that's Mm -hmm. probably my strongest identity that um, (laughs) I'm a voracious reader. I've been a voracious reader for ages and ages and ages, and um, you know i actually started writing because my parents told me that when i was you know three and four i started you know putting paper and tracing over the letters of my favorite books and so mm, um, you know, i have just been a reader mm-hmm. from the from the get-go and mm. um and i still i read voraciously i mean obviously last year with the pandemic and i had a period where you know i mean as a full-time freelancer i had no work between uh, i think i had uh, written invoice on march 10th and then the next invoice was the end of august so i had no work mm. between them. so wow. um, last year i read a lot more than <laughs> yeah than normal years i read over 400 books um, oh
0: my goodness wow
1: <laughs> you know not including the books that i either wrote or translated you know that are work so that includes you know poetry and fiction so especially mm. i mean during the pandemic, I was reading a lot of poetry to stop doom scrolling. And it was one, one of the ways I would leave my phone in another room and I couldn't concentrate for very long, but the brief intensity of poetry, I was able to. So, um, mm. but yes, you know, I mean, all of my identities are very book focused or book, uh, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, the, the books are sort of very much at the heart of my, all of my life and, you know, both my working life and my fun life in many ways. Mm. So, um, <laughs> which is, you know, for me, not a problem, but, uh, you know, for other people, it it can seem a little bit uh, monothematic, perhaps.
0: Oh, well, you know, that's the power of books, I think, too. I I, kind of feel the same way. So
1: (laughs) It's the power of books. And also, I mean, I I read very widely. And so I read in a lot of genres. And I mean, you know, I have lots and lots of books. um, You know, I mean, in order to read, for instance, 400 books, I need to have more than 400 books. And also, I need to have books because I never know what mood I'm going to be in. So I may want something funny. I may want something serious. I may want something that's going to make me feel uh, good or, or terrified or, you know I mean? So there's lots of different genres that I read in. And so Mm. um, I also, I, I, I love buying books. I love, you know um, it's one of the weird things also, because of the pandemic uh, it's changed how, or my relationship with the books. So normally I would, uh, be able to pull a book off my shelf, and I can remember that I bought it at this bookshop or, you know, I, someone gave it to me or, you know, I mean, the, the, the histories associated with the books was very much a part for me of my, my having the books. And now that everything has to come through the mail, uh, because, you know, we, we still not uh, traveling like, it, like we used to, um, mm. that's been very different. And, and I don't have the same sort of, um, I don't know, I guess I'm uh the, the sort of hunter-gatherer thrill that you know when you discover a book and, <laughs> and also there are, I've not been able to discover as easily new voices or things like that, that when you go to a bookshop, you know, you don't necessarily know what you want beforehand. That is you can find mm, things yeah. um in a in a good bookshop that that's curated and things like that. Um, or even going to things like I go a lot to the charity shops and I'll be like, Okay, this is, especially if you know poetry, I love going to, you know, charity shops and, and just saying, okay, this is, you know, uh, a pound, two pounds, uh, that's under my impulse threshold, I will try this voice. And I know nothing about it, but something appeals to me. And, and I've discovered lots of uh, lots of writers who I've then, you know, bought their new titles when they come out and things like that, because I fell in love with their work but without knowing beforehand.
2: So
0: mm-hmm. so um, we can add book hunter to the, to the descriptions and to. Exactly. <laughs> so, but how did you, how did you end up or how did you evolve to become such a, yeah, as I said earlier, multifaceted book person? What's, uh, what are your origins what which languages because you're also a translator which languages do you speak write translate into and um what's your publishing job entail right and your so, writing also <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> so, so to get I, back to that question of of yeah explaining a little bit what life. yeah yeah
1: well, I'm originally from uh, New York. I'm a small town New Yorker. I like to joke because um, I'm a third generation born in Manhattan and I was born in the same hospital my mother was born. in. So, you know, mm. on my mother's side, we've been, you know, New Yorkers for a while. Uh, my father is uh, he's first generation born in Brooklyn. His parents were born in Lviv, which is now Ukraine, but was Poland when we left. Um, so English is my mother tongue. Uh, I've been living in Spain for over twenty years now. I do write in both Spanish and English, and I translate in both directions. And so, uh, I call Spanish my stepmother tongue. Um, <laughs> and oh, yeah. Uh, mm. yeah, I started. But you, did, but you, you never,
0: know, you never, you. So Spanish, you didn't pick it up in kind of family circumstances. It really is a language that you learned outside of your family. Well, no.
1: Um, mm. So both my parents worked, and my mother also, she had gone, come to study when she was in university here in Spain. She was um, mm. she had wanted to be a, a veterinarian, and my grandfather said that's not an appropriate job for a woman back at that time. And huh. so um, she studied <laughs> Spanish literature instead. And then mm-hmm. um, when she came back to the States, she was working at the time as a, a court interpreter in Spanish.
0: Uh, oh, in the- okay. Interesting. And,
1: um, so in many ways... Uh, Spanish is a mother tongue that is it was something my mother could talk to me yeah. that my father didn't speak also because both my parents were working until they came home we always had um, a Spanish speaking uh, nanny taking care of my sister and I uh, my parents helped a number of um, of people from normally from uh, Central America to uh, get their papers and then normally one of their cousins would come over instead and, and things like that so. Uh, I mean, it, it was a domestic, uh, you know, I, I didn't speak it just with my family, but it was definitely a domestic language. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the problems, though, was that uh, because my formal Spanish education was not very strong and very often, I mean, one of the things my parents discovered was uh, in order to save some money, they they started buying some white label uh cans of uh canned goods and so those are the inexpensive ones and it just says the name and we discovered that some of the women were um illiterate because if they didn't know if they didn't see a can with a picture of peas the on image. it they didn't know what was in mm. it until they opened it and so they started making some really uh weird foods <laughs> and that's how we discovered that um you know in my parents attempt to save a little bit of cash um they wound up you know <laughs>
0: Uh, being surprised for dinner.
1: <laughs> well, no, I mean it was it was us being surprised. You know, it was they would you know, when they got home. They, they, they were only taking care of, of my sister and me. But, right. Um,
2: okay. Yeah.
1: But uh, you know that was something that only came up uh, at that point. So, um, so yes, yeah, so, I mean Spanish is is one of my. Um, it's it's not my mother tongue, but it's a, it's it's something I've been speaking uh, for a long time. Um mm-hmm. I started writing um, in my teens when I ran out of things to read. So I was a big uh, science fiction reader and I ran out of uh, books. I'd read everything I had uh, at home and at the library and things that my local bookshop could could get for me. and so I started inventing my own stories and I started submitting them as well because I sold my first um, stories while I was still in high school and my parents had to uh, Signed the contracts for me because I was under eighteen and I couldn't enter into mm. a, a legally binding agreement. So, um, you know, some of the first, um, you know, the very first professional sale I made was to uh, a, re- a woman named Marion Zimmer Bradley, who was famous for writing *The Mists of Avalon*, where she looked at the the King Arthur legend from the women's point of view. Um, but mm. she also had a series of uh, anthologies she was editing um, for Daw Books, which is an imprint of Penguin and um those were the first she was the first person to to professionally buy stories of mine and publish them in these science fiction anthologies and oh. i just kept kept going from there mm-hmm.
2: so uh, mm-hmm.
1: when i was you know most of my attention was focused on those those anthologies uh, rather than magazines or things like that so um you know a lot of my early work is still uh you know, the magazines disappear very quickly, even though the magazines actually have a much larger readership. So, you know, you might have, you know, back in the day, you might have let's say an anthology that has a first print run of five thousand copies. So you have a smaller number of readers than a magazine that has maybe fifty thousand readers every month. So, mm-hmm. you know, the magazines build up a bigger readership. But um, I loved writing uh, for the anthologies, and I also loved it was kind of like doing journalism as fiction. So I could I would know that you know you had a deadline when it had to be in there was a theme rather than just writing anything, you know, for me, I found that, you know, knowing what the editor was looking for. And also I, I was writing something that went against the grain very often. So I just kept going from there. Um, And Mm -hmm. then the first books that I published um, were actually anthologies where I was the anthologist. Um, Although it was funny, maybe at the beginning of the pandemic, when, when we started, um, Doing all of these virtual encounters, um, I wound up doing a talk on translation. And I, I did some research into my own past. And I realized that before my own books came out uh, as an author and anthologist, I had actually published um, some translations and some graphic novel translations. And I didn't realize that those had actually been, you know, that I was publishing translations as in book form before I was publishing my own books, even though I had started writing much earlier. Mm. Uh, so I, mean, I was a writer and you know I fell into the translation purely by accident and a, a unfortunate situation for the the translator I took over from uh, there was a graphic novel publisher I knew in in New York and I think we probably were at a convention not a science fiction convention but probably ABA which was before book expo mm-hmm. and um, he needed someone who could speak Spanish and was available immediately because his translator had a heart attack and passed away oh. when we were finishing the book <laughs> and so I took over that and was able to, you know, in the next uh, two weeks, translate my first graphic novel.
0: <laughs> wow. So, <you> know. <laughs> and so you were still living in, in New York, in the U.S. at the time.
1: Exactly. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I grew up, I was born in Manhattan. I grew up on Long Island. Uh, I went to university at Yale. Um, mm-hmm. So I was publishing all during my uh, my college career. And then I just hit the ground running as a full-time freelancer uh, after after mm-hmm. I, I moved to New York. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a, a rent control department back then in the early mm. 90s. You could mm. still do that in New York, and there was still a artistic community as a result, <laughs> which mm. is all gone now. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. And how long did you stay there before you picked up again and moved this time across the pond to to Spain. So were you I, going elsewhere some before maybe?
1: <laughs> no, I mean I had been visiting Europe before mm. and I had been published in in translation before um mm-hmm. so I had started for instance I went the first time I went to the Frankfurt Book Fair was in 97 and I moved to Spain in 1999. So mm-hmm. um, you know I was already uh you I mean when I moved to Spain in 99 I had already published uh, Let's see, I think I was 26 and I had already published 26 books. So I was able to hit the ground running here. And, you know, I was established enough that I could up, you know, pick up and leave without losing uh, too much momentum. Um, at the same time, when I landed in Spain, uh, my first short story collection had already been published in Spanish translation. And for me, uh, moving to Spain was, was different, where in the U.S. I was mostly known as an anthologist. And in Spain, I was mostly considered a writer and my Spanish publisher, uh the first my first Spanish publisher Laertes, they had a, what in Spanish is Politica de Autor. I was a house author, so mm-hmm. they bought my second and third collections, which I wrote in English, but they published in Spanish translation years before they had an English edition. So mm-hmm. um, that to me was also something uh that was good, <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, you know, yeah sure. a writer um and in that case
0: did you translate them into spanish yourself i did
1: not so Mm -hmm. okay um, Mm -hmm. by other people um Mm -hmm. it's interesting i tend not to translate myself sometimes i will do like especially you know bilingual children's books yeah um but uh you know my most recent book for adults is a collection of 100 erotic microfiction and the book has been translated into english by sandra kingery it's um uh it was a very interesting experience being translated into my mother tongue
2: yeah um, and
1: yeah. uh you know but in many ways uh it was interesting talking to, to another other translator, other translator authors about this that
2: hmm. the
1: moment of creation is different so writing something bilingual the the translation is part of the process whereas translating work that's already finished you wind up putting it back on the creative table as opposed to just the translation, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. And so it becomes yeah. it's different when you translate yourself because you basically recreate it rather than just translating it. So it's. Yeah. Uh,
0: That's so interesting. And did did you did you reread and and kind of made some suggestions to to improve the translation, or you were like hands off? yeah, I don't know, I, I'm trying to imagine what it would feel like to be translated into your mother tongue, right? And not, and not just completely wanting to control everything. I don't know. That's uh, or maybe that's just my my personality. But I'd be curious to hear how you how you saw that.
1: Um, I definitely so the control on one hand is something that you know, uh, I can understand and empathize and sympathize with. Um, it wasn't the first time I'd been translated into my mother tongue. So that yeah. was a book that um, right. I had done a children's book for Ecare, which is a children's publisher originally from Venezuela that now has offices in, in Chile and, and Barcelona. And um, mm. so I had done a book and then Groundwood bought the rights. And when I, by the time I found out that they'd made the rights sale, uh, the book was already translated into English by Elisa Mado, And that was fascinating for me to be able to step back and be like, okay, it's her translation. Um, there were things I would have done very differently you know in Spanish the book is called Vamos a ver a papá I would have said we're going to see papa um mm-hmm. and the translation was let's go see daddy and I said okay mm. let's go see I have no problem with but it's the book is about um it tells the other side of the immigration story so instead of coming to a new country it's the people left behind in this case a girl mm. in Latin America whose father's abroad working and sending money home and I said it really needs to be papa daddy just doesn't work for me yeah. and they said okay yeah. They understood that they made it daddy. And I said, everything else is fine. These are her choices. And so what that then helped me was as a translator to say, okay, I can get feedback from the author and the author can say they may like something more or less, but the translation is actually mine. And I'm the one who's signing the translation. And um, it it helped me uh, have more confidence as a translator being translated into my mother tongue to be able to say, you know, when I'm translating other authors, to put my foot down and say, no, this is actually, yeah. you know. Um, and, uh, and it was fascinating, especially with the the, the adult book that Sandra Kingery translated, um, you know, as a, so the, the challenge I had made for myself was to see, uh, so I think that erotica is not so much about the hydraulics of sex, but the context. And so I wanted to see if you could compress into the format of the microfiction. So each story is a maximum of 500 words, which is both sides of one sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. And so I said, um, you know, can you write erotic stories in such a compressed uh, format? One thing Mm -hmm. that happens with erotica, uh, and this was actually something that, you know, when I started uh, translating the graphic novels, the first graphic novel was a science fiction one, which was wonderful because it was all, you know, chase scenes and, you know, you you got paid by the page and very often you had pages with very few words on them. And then I did some erotic uh, graphic novels for the same company, and those were, had so much more text. I mean, you wouldn't think it, but there was so much more dirty talk and it was all euphemisms. (laughs) And so it was all challenges of, you know, how to recreate this dirty talk and place on words and double entendres. Uh And so when Sandra did the translation into English, we thought that there would maybe be uh, sexual vocabulary issues or things like that. No, her questions were mostly things like um, in Spanish architecture, for instance, usually the uh, apartments have like a little vestibule Mm-hmm. Uh, that we didn't know what to call that in English because a vestibule in English seems more like a lobby of a bigger building as opposed to just, you know, like a mud, a mud room or a mud closet, you know, and so it was sort of trying to figure out some of those things and she also, she came up with solutions for some of the puns and plays on words that would never have occurred to me so it was amazing mm. and fascinating to see her come mm. up with solutions to things that uh, I had written in Spanish and uh, that was great so yeah, yeah. sure.
0: That's oh such a yeah intricate s- structure. <laughs> it's uh, just to yeah no I'm 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 really fascinated. So hi how how do you I mean um, first question? Do you ever sleep? I mean you have <laughs> or do you are you one of those people who get by with four hours of sleep a night? Because I mean it's they're of course they're all related. Your 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 jobs. It's all as you as you pointed out they're all related and and evolving around the book and reading. Um, how did you, how do you just keep up with everything? Because uh, we didn't even talk about your your publishing house yet. And yet. <laughs> how, <laughs> so, um, yeah, perhaps we can I start by see. how, yeah, how, how does a typical day for you look like if you have a certain structure in mind when you start your day or if you just go with the flow?
1: So I have no structure. I do sleep. <laughs> um, okay. and I, I moved to a country where the siesta is a national uh, ah. a national identity. So, mm. um, you know, that's definitely that's, something yeah. that... Uh, the other thing is, I mean, the, the day in Spanish is a very long day.
2: Yeah. But
1: because it's a relaxed day, you know, we can get a lot more done. So I think mm. that, you know, you have a break for lunch and a siesta. And then you still have, you know, I mean, until 9pm is still the working day. You know what I mean? So it, it's, it's a yeah. long day but it's a very productive one, I think. Um, Mm. So the other things that I would say that have allowed me to, I guess, be as productive as I am, is that I live in a country with socialized medicine. Um, Mm. So I mean, you know, compared to what it was, I mean, just, you know, when I left New York in 1999, I was paying, I think, $800 a month just in in health insurance, Mm -hmm. aside from anything like that. So um, yes. you know
0: I just had a small pinch in my heart because yes, I totally hear you.
1: <laughs> but not having, having that moved, makes yeah. a huge difference, right? Um, yeah. and the quality yeah. of life and the affordability of life here in Madrid. You know, I mean, when I moved here in in 1999, uh, literally, I can tell you, the last year I was in New York, I made as a full time freelance writer twelve thousand three hundred dollars, and the poverty level in New York was thirteen thousand. Yeah. So I was oh. literally under the poverty level um mm. my grandmother uh and her boyfriend used to take me to dinner twice a week to make sure that i ate enough
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, so but you know that was my yeah. life goal. at the same yeah. time that twelve and a half uh thousand dollars was two and a half million pesetas which was a very comfortable middle class uh income at the time when you transfer mm. you know the dollar was stronger than the euro than the peseta at that time and so yeah. Um, so I was able to, you know, doing the same things I was doing in New York, I was able to live much better, uh, here in Madrid,
0: mm. you know, in mm-hmm. a major
1: metropolitan, uh, cosmopolitan city. Um, mm. so, so that definitely made, made a, a, big a difference.
0: difference. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. you
1: mentioned, uh, the poetry publisher that I run, a Midsummer Night's yeah. Press. This was a small press that I started in 2007 to do commercial books. So when I was an undergraduate though, I had, um, all of the dormitories in, or at the time, I think all of the dormitories in Yale or certainly my dormitory had a letterpress in the basement. And so I learned how to use the letterpress and I spoke to Mm. some poets that I knew and I bought rights for them to produce limited edition broadsides of their work. And um, Mm. that was called the Midsummer Night's Press. And then years later, I decided um, I had been producing when I went to Frankfurt, a little catalog in an A6 size. And I loved the format and I said, why don't I try doing some, some poetry books in the same format? And so that was how I started the press. Mm. Um, so the press is based out of New York, even though I'm in Madrid. And that's also always been a big nightmare of, you know, um, certainly in the U S right now, the whole shipping uh, mm-hmm. concerns is a big thing, but, you know, getting yeah. books from one place to another um, mm. back in the day when it was, you know, before print on demand was even possible. I've always done, uh, offset so I mean I haven't really been mm-hmm. I'm just beginning to experiment with seeing if things work with the print-on-demand um, mm. but you know it's it's a change of model so so yeah, yeah. The,
0: the
1: do you have somebody
0: was... in is somebody helping you out in New York or are you just doing everything from Madrid
1: so I do everything from Madrid um, and so we we're distributed by SPD small press distribution in California mm-hmm. but even getting the books to them and you know um, at this point uh you know my parents address is where the the press's Mm. returns go to so for instance Mm. amazon has been returning uh for some reason one copy a day of of some of the titles and you know it drives my father crazy (laughs) because he's like it's so much
2: longer let them
1: just return all of them at once but you know he he hates that every day he gets this plastic
0: yeah
1: (laughs) you know that and he has to tear it open and there's only one Mm -hmm. little side with the slip and um and it drives him him crazy. Yeah. So, um, you know, and he, he's he's not a word person in general, but he he, <laughs> he feels this, you know, uh, he feels it uh, that it's just so wasteful the the amount of mm-hmm. land happening because yeah. of the, it's just the logistic issue. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um,
1: so, so you know, but but basically, it's a very small uh, small operation. I mm-hmm. the way I run though it's it's been difficult. I mean, distribution, most distributors always want you to have a voracious series of new titles so that they yeah. can returns against the income yeah. from new titles. And I've always done it that if I didn't have the money to print something, you know, I, if I have the money to print something, I can print it. And then
2: right.
1: it, if it takes me 10 years to sell, you know, I'm, I'm not working on a commercial uh, mm. basis in that way. Yeah. So, Yes. As a result, though, we've been able to publish voices that might otherwise fall through the cracks, and so that's mm-hmm. something that um, you know the, the the poetry press has three main imprints, which are um, one is uh, Fabula Rasa, which does mythic, um, fairy tale inspired work. One is mm-hmm. Body Language, which does LGBT voices, and there's another imprint I did called uh, Periscope, where uh, back in I think 2014. Um, Everything published in the US in the previous two years, um, they had done some number crunching and it had turned out that only 26% were by women writers. And I, I knew that as a translator, when I'm pitching projects, it's much easier to pitch uh, to find uh, both support and publishers for uh, books by male writers. So mm. um, when all of this was, uh, came to light, that there was a lack of women's voices, I said, okay, I have a press. I can do something. So we've published uh, Mm. five books so far in that imprint, which uh, have been from Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, Spain, and Slovenia. Mm. Uh, All of whom are women who published at least two books in their home country, so they're not a one-hit wonder, but they had never had a book published in English. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. I think even Kari Santos had published 40 books, uh, award-winning novelist. She does now have a, a novel that's been translated into English by Alma Books in the UK. Mm-hmm. But uh, she had never had anything translated into English before Before the collection that we did. So um,
2: mm.
1: we have also published translations in other, other imprints. And so uh, in our body language imprint, we've published poets from uh, Holland and from uh, Slovenia as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did do one sort of out-of-series uh, collection by a Kurdish Syrian poet named uh, Golan Haji, mm-hmm. um, who was invited to the Schuback Festival in London, and so we produced that in time for his uh, appearance there.
0: Because mm. you, so a few questions to follow up. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> you, um, so you, so you, you, also have UK UK distribution because you mentioned there's a festival in London.
1: We don't have an official distributor in the UK. There are certain bookshops that we work with. So, for instance, mm-hmm. the Sacha Bookshop is one that, especially uh, that, that title in yeah. particular, they've been a major point of distribution for. I can
0: imagine. Yeah. Um,
1: for this, this particular book. Uh, other bookshops have um, have definitely been uh, big supporters of of you know usually some or part of our list um, mm-hmm. so um, so the books are available they're not necessarily uh, but we don't have a distributor so right okay so you'd and-
0: work just you know, a case-to-case po- probably basis with, with certain exactly. books. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay. okay. publishers
1: in general, I mean, most distributors don't like poetry. So it's, yeah. uh, it's, 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 it's a yeah. lot of other battles. Just, and so... Yeah. Um, so it's just simpler we, to, yeah. We do also, I mean, especially since I'm in Madrid, it's easy enough to get to London. Um, I, I regularly attend various poetry book fairs, like the Free First Poetry Book Fair and things like that. Also, things like in the U.S., the uh, Associated Writing Programs Conference, which has around uh, twelve to 12,000 to 15,000 people every year. So, and mm-hmm. I think that when we're able to have a table and people can come and see our books, um, that makes a huge difference. You know, we can sell a few hundred copies of books um, over a, a weekend, um, which is major for a poetry title. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So,
1: but, you know, it's definitely, it's something that's passion-led rather than a commerce-based decision.
0: So yeah, yeah, yeah. And how do you find those voices? I mean, you mentioned, well, poet from Holland, from, from I don't know, Eastern European countries. How do you yeah, what what's um get do they get pitched to you? I mean, I guess it's a combination of both, but it's a, it's um do you have certain sources? Mm-hmm. And
1: especially since, um, since I am in Europe and I'm a poet as well, so mm-hmm. I've been, I've taken part in a lot of uh, European poetry festivals where I'll meet right. people, and so sometimes mm, there'll be
2: poets I meet,
1: sometimes there are translators I meet, um, sometimes there are, um, I'll go to Frankfurt and I'll, you know, meet the people at a national stand and talk to them and say, you know, look, I've published from. Uh, these countries. And, you know, if you have any poets that you'd like to recommend to me, and so they'll often send me English samples of some of the work. Um, sometimes it's actually Spanish samples. So for instance, the this, this Slovenian poet who was, uh, who's published in the Periscope series, uh, Jana Puteli, she had a collection that was translated into Spanish and published in Argentina, and I was able to read the Spanish collection and decide to publish her in English uh, because I read Spanish. And so mm-hmm. I don't yeah. read Slovenian. Uh, but, <laughs> no, uh, not
0: yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, and uh, although Slovenia has been very good to me as an author where I think I have 12 or 15 books published in Slovenia. So wow. I mean, you know, they've been they've been a, definitely a very, <laughs> a very big uh, market for me. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's been, uh, I remember once I was, uh, I had met at AWP, a translator gave me an anthology he had done with support from the Lithuanian Cultural Institute of uh, contemporary Lithuanian poets, and I read Mm -hmm. through it, and I picked a poet that I liked, and at Frankfurt I went and met the people at the Lithuanian Cultural Institute, and I said... I explained who I was. I showed them who we'd published already, you know, and that the books we do and, and the series and things like that. And, and they said, "Okay, here's this anthology." I said, "I've read it already. I've already picked who I wanted." You know, they were thinking they had to. <laughs> and right. I said, you know, I found the Lithuanian poet. I have the translator. We would just like some support if you could support the translation. Said, That's so easy." <laughs> yes, I was just
0: going to say you 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 did all the work for them. <laughs>
1: Surprised, and they were delighted, okay. and so, yes. um, and you know, mm. they were also wonderful to support. They have a separate mobility fund, and so mm. uh, the author was then invited to festivals in New York, in London, in Manchester, um, and they were wow. able to to support that as well, which was important. So, um, you know, in some ways, poetry doesn't sell a lot in general. Uh, fighting against to do poetry in translation, especially poetry in translation by contemporary younger women's voices, is uphill battle a mm. lot so you know i mean getting yeah. them out into the world to me that makes it um yeah wonderful and a lot of times mm. at these festivals or other events they meet other poets sometimes they recommend them to me or vice versa and stuff like that yeah. so um, yeah. so a lot of it happens that way and i do get you know translators pitching us and as well yeah. directly so yeah mm.
0: Well, what I wanted to say is that the fact that you publish them in English is probably going, giving them, if they haven't been translated widely yet, elsewhere in other languages. It gives it just opens the door widely, right? Because everybody reads English, so that's that's an amazing, um, you know, entry point, I guess, for them to to exactly. many other countries. So that's in that sense, it's also beautiful what you're doing. It's not just for you know to make it available for English readers, but for readers around the world, basically.
1: So I have a sort of a buncular pride where some of our poets, you know, like one of the the Estonian poet who we published in English for the first time was then translated into Arabic from the English. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it was the very first Estonian book to be translated into Arabic. So it was sort mm. of
2: um,
1: and the Slovenian poet I mentioned, it was interesting. So I first read her work in Spanish published in Argentina, but because I'm in Spain, a number of independent bookstops uh, stock the English language series as well. And a Spanish editor Read the series and bought her third book to publish from translated from Slovenian into Spanish as a result of reading my translation into Mm. English. It was just a, it went from Spanish to English into Spanish. Not the same books, but um,
0: it was in writing. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's,
1: you know, being able to offer an English language collection for these voices and for them to be able to take part on the international scene that's an important thing to me. So, I mean, a lot of times also when I talk to the national stands, they'll pitch someone who's a very respected elder voice, but is not going to be someone who's going to take advantage of having a book in English and using that as a stepping stone to achieve other things. Whereas for me, that's important. You know, it's not just publishing the book, but also that the book opens doors for these authors.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And, you know, and it creates these relationships where, you know, they'll, through the English they may meet uh, colleagues in Holland or Germany or Italy or things like that, and, and, you know, have other long-term uh, collaborations that don't involve me, but that, you know, I was able to open the door by having connection. So
2: Mm-mm, mm-hmm.
1: this is yeah. also something that when I write in Spanish, I've discovered that until I translate myself into English or someone else translates me into English, it does limit who is able to consider for translation rights, the books that yeah. I've done. So. Mm-hmm. For um, sure, yeah. You know, that's definitely something that I've noticed as I've been living here longer, um, you know, and even my regular uh, publishers who publish me a lot, if I write something in Spanish and they only read in English, I, th- I either have to, you know, create an English uh, self-translation um, mm-hmm. or if someone else has translated it into English, that I can send them that for them to be able to read and consider uh, yeah. the
2: work.
0: Yeah, I mean, for us, it's, it's from my experience, it's uh, with representing dutch books and books from italy and 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 other you know, non-english languages it's very often it depends on the genre and depends of course also on the author and um, a lot of other different factors but it oh it sure helps to have an english sample <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> there's just so many yeah so many doors that that open that remain closed if you just have the only the original um, text in the original language, so right. um, that's something. But this that is I, something I
1: know. Hmm. Translating work into English, so very often, if I don't do a sample, or if someone commissions a sample, unless that happens, it's very hard to sell. Um, you know, there there are more uh, Spanish speaking editors, certainly in the English speaking world, than yeah. some other languages. But even still, without the sample, um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and so very often I'll work with uh, agents or publishing houses to do samples of work. I mean, usually right now, the pre Frankfurt rush. Uh, Is a busy time, you know, also, since I do a lot of children's books, you know, before Bologna. um, One thing that's been very interesting for me to see lately is that um, starting this year, I guess, uh, I've been commissioned not just to do the beginnings of books, but to do a chunk from the beginning, a chunk from the middle and a chunk from Mm. the end, where publishers are, you know, English publishers are wanting to see. Yeah. can does the author hold up over the course of the book, not just... uh, a big chunk from the beginning which is what I've been used to doing Mm. for the you know 27 years or so that I've been translating and so Mm. that's been an interesting uh, yeah uh, it's interesting that you bring that
0: up yeah it's it's I've I've seen that too that as you say the, the beginning can be very very strong and that's what has translated into English, but, um, there needs to be some reassurance about what, what happens afterwards with the quality of the language. And, um, so we, I've, I've worked with both sample translations of just like the first couple of chapters or mm-hmm. the first two chapters and then in the middle and then in a couple of chapters in the end. So it's, uh, yeah. And then I, 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 don't really know when, I guess it's, 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 um, yeah, it really depends on the, on the situation because it's also complicated, I think, to, to, to to be able to evaluate a book if you don't if you have chunks right that are not no. connected so <laughs> I, I don't really have an answer to um, you know if somebody asks me a question what is better to work with when you have a sample um, whether it's a, a linear you know from chapter one to five or if it's the first two chapters and then chapter 10 and 11 and then 20 and 21 I yeah it's, it's hard to say depends on the book again. But yeah, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: (laughs) No, I mean, I I think that there needs to be enough of one. I mean, but I mean, one of the big problems also with translating is that so often, especially for the English speaking world, so much burden gets put on the translators to do a lot of work and unfortunately a lot of unpaid work, whether it's, you know, writing the pitches or things like that. I mean, Uh, in your case, you're selling translation rights um, as an agency, but very often, translators and especially from a lot of the smaller languages there isn't that sort of support neither from agencies Mm-mm. or from a, a national uh, funding body or things like that so they wind up having to translate on spec a sample do a reader's report and then knock on doors saying you know look at this great work from uh, a lesser known language which right away puts puts you know the fearful american or british <laughs> uh, <laughs> editors mm-hmm. they're like no 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 you know <laughs> Scary, scary translation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. Mm. So yeah. I mean, these are. But I mean, it's been interesting that I've been commissioned lately. You know, mostly by American uh, editors asking for for me to do samples of books that they've been interested in, and the commissions have been for that sort of multiple. Yeah. Um, right. It's, there was some some of the Spanish publishers. I wasn't able to do it last year, but they had started doing the same thing. What they call the flow through, where you translate. A chunk from the beginning, a synopsis, a chunk, a synopsis, mm. and then, it, you know. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And I, okay, I, I a flow through.
0: It, Thank you. It
1: seems <laughs> to be, that seems to be what, uh, it's something new that I've seen yeah. only very recently.
0: yeah. Uh, yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that term, so thanks for teaching me the, the flow sure. through. <laughs> um so let's let's talk a bit about you as an author. Um and I yeah, I saw I saw your name uh pop up. Well, already I see your name pop up quite a bit on the publishers uh without borders Facebook group. <laughs> so you are you're a very um uh, a very active member of that and um I um and, and also on that uh, Facebook group, and and in the international media, I I read I followed closely the um, the, the situation around one of your board books, which is um, it's called What a Family. Which I now understand you explained it to me very patiently, and thank you for that. That it's actually a combination of two separate books <laughs> titled Early Morning and Bedtime, not Playtime. Um, so it's a it's a children's board book uh, with an LGBTQ theme and it was censored uh, or it it faced some form of censorship in Hungary recently Um, and it was that was covered in the the international publishing news so can you tell us more about this? Sure. How it's kind of unfolded, how you found out about it, uh, what the measures were exactly that were taken in in Hungary?
1: Sure. Um, As you mentioned, so there there were two books that I originally wrote in Spanish. and I never expected that these books would have the international reach that they wound up having. So not only did they would become, you know, sort of international scandals because of the censorship, and um, they've sort of turned into this symbol of freedom. Where mm. lots, you know, after that happened, lots of other countries wanted to publish them to say um, we're not as uh, retrograde as Hungary. You know, we're more forward thinking, and um, and also to help their children grow up to be less homophobic. They said, mm. we need to make these books available. So, um, you know, the two books, well, the project is published in, um, or it's signed up. Not a lot of them have been published, but there's 33 editions in 27 languages so far. Mm,
0: which that's is amazing. An amazing, <laughs> yeah. an amazing
1: thing. And especially for a book that I wrote in rhyme in Spanish. So, you know, I mean, it sort of it goes against publishing, thing, publishing wisdom where it says, you know, rhyming books are hard to sell. Um, and especially a book that was not originally written in English. Um, that also is, you know, um, and it happened because I had been translating so many books uh, in rhyme from English into Spanish and I'd never written and I, I published over 120 books and I had never written a rhyming book myself <laughs> and I said, well, why don't I give this a try. Nice and, challenge.
0: Um, yeah. <laughs>
1: I had, there are certainly other uh, children's books with LGBT themes, but I felt that there was still a tremendous need for books that weren't about overcoming homophobia or about being different that just were fun joyful Mm. books um, Mm. that happen to have um, same-sex families. So Mm. uh, in the bedtime book, there's a girl who's trying to get ready for bed and her dog wants to play. Uh, She's brushing her teeth and um, her two daddies read her her favorite book and the dog gets jealous and he jumps on the bed, steals the bear and runs off. And so (laughs) adventures ensue. In the Good Morning book, a boy wakes up early. His two moms are still asleep. The only one who's awake is the cat and they go in the kitchen and have adventures as well. So they're Mm -hmm. very sweet stories. They're very universal stories because, I mean, even if kids don't have dogs or cats, all kids wake up and all kids go to bed. So, Mm -hmm. you know. And they probably um, dream
0: about having a dog or a cat. So if they don't have one.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Um, So, you know, but there's nothing scandalous. There's nothing sexual about the books or anything like Mm -hmm. that. Um,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: They just happen to be fun stories that just happen to take place in same-sex families. Mm -hmm. And um, so the two books were published together in uh in hungary in one volume until Mm -hmm. then the most pushback we actually had about the books was that in the morning book the boy and the cat go in the kitchen and uh because in spanish kitchen cocina rhymes well with margarine margarina Mm -hmm. i had used margarine and so he makes you know bread with margarine and the cat prefers the margarine without the bread And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just a cute little joke.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So many of the translators or the countries that they were published had huge problems with the fact of it being margarine. So (laughs) the the Swiss publisher was like, absolutely not. It must be butter. This is a national... We need
0: dairy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing uh, (laughs) fan-based.
1: The Hungarian translator, actually, she said, look, in Hungarian, butter is three letters. It's V-A-J. And it's a short one-syllable word. It works much better for my rhythm than margarine which is this long cumbersome word that i can't rhyme with easily so you know mm-hmm. there were a lot of um you know up until the the hungarian censorship uh started to happen the biggest problem in the book was actually the margarine <laughs> rather than <laughs> families and so and actually the the Hebrew edition is now going to use hummus instead of either margarine or, <laughs> or the dairy. <laughs> um, I <yeah>. love
0: this. <laughs> Some of
1: the translators didn't even ask. So like the French translators, uh-huh. we said, no, I just made it butter. Of course I made it butter. Of course,
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: um, so, but a few weeks after the book was published in Hungary, the Hungarian government um, created a new law that's similar to the Russian uh lgbt propaganda law so it was uh, Mm -hmm. making it illegal to show uh lgbt content for kids under 18
2: Mm. we
1: didn't know how it was going to be uh employed that is the law is very vague it was basically you know to create fear and to have people self-censor more than anything you know i mean it doesn't say Mm -hmm. is it illegal for a parent to read it to their own child is it illegal to publish it is it illegal to sell it Various things like that. So Mm -hmm. there was a lot of uh, uncertainty around it, just it was, you know, hateful and attacking the LGBT community uh, as a way of trying to, you know, get the right wing uh, votes uh, in Hungary Mm -hmm. supporting Orban. And um, Mm -hmm. the day before the law went into effect, though, um, the government uh, fined a bookstore for selling the book without warning customers that it contained families that were quote unquote non-traditional. So they mm. used a different law, you know, before this law went into effect uh, that was a consumer uh, protection law to yes. find this bookstore 250,000 for which is around um, maybe 700 euros, so $800, mm. something like that, mm. um, for doing so. As a result, mm. some bookstores did put warning labels on the book saying that uh, this book contains, uh, quote unquote, uh, families that are not traditional. The bookstore that had been fined, though Lira Koniv, um, they put a warning label at the front entrance of all of the stores in their chain, saying, "We sell diverse books here." So that was an amazing mm. stand for freedom on their behalf. And so many people in Hungary, also, you know, who might have been indifferent about LGBT rights or something, really came out to oppose the censorship of these books. Mm. Um, you know, it was wonderful to see on Instagram so many families showing you know photos of either their kids or sometimes their cat or their dog mm. if they didn't want to put the kids, you know, <laughs> reading the book and they would have mm-hmm. a you know, hashtag civil disobedience or things like that. So mm. um, that was something really wonderful and heartwarming um, that happened as a result of all of this. Um, mm. The books were also published in Russia. Um, in addition, mm. again in a two-in-one edition, that edition says very boldly on the back cover 18 plus because of the the propaganda laws that you cannot show anything for kids under 18 so it shows the absurdity of this board book which are for the youngest kids with an 18 plus label on it (laughs) um it was published by an NGO as part of their campaign to get the law repealed and Mm -hmm. you know they they had to be very careful the books are not sold they give the books away for free you can donate to their campaign to support the you know so everything but anything about the campaign had to also say 18 plus on it so like the little postcard they made anything that had a picture all of that had to be you know they were very careful not to uh break the law but it Mm -hmm. shows how absurd the law is yeah so um Mm. and you know Mm -hmm. as a result i mentioned that there's a hebrew edition but because of all the international news that happened um you know, I was talking to a, a translator friend in Israel about uh, some recent articles that had shown up in the Israeli media. And she said, well, who's publishing them in Israel? And I said, nobody. Uh, and she said, well, I'll do them. And she created a crowdfunding um, hmm. to fund a Hebrew translation, which has right. met its first goal. So that'll, you know, they will be published in paperback if the, the fundraiser is still going on. So if they meet the mm-hmm. second goal, they'll do hardcover.
0: Um, hmm.
1: So that's, that's one of the nice positive things that happened. There's also a campaign from an NGO in Stuttgart right now uh, with a buy one, donate one campaign. So for every book bought in German, they donate to an NGO in Lodz. Lodz and Stuttgart are sister cities. Um, a copy in Polish so that um, the NGO in Poland will distribute them free to schools and libraries and families in Poland. So it's a nice solidarity campaign. So, I mean, you know, even though these books... You know, a lot of the international news has been about the censorship of the books and the homophobia yeah. they faced. The whole point of the books was to be not about homophobia. So, I mean, I love the fact that you know yeah. the solidarity campaign is happening, and you know that I also think that the fact that there are thirty-three editions around the world, most of which were done before the <laughs> before the homophobia happened, mm-hmm. um, shows how necessary this sort of representation is. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I also I arranged a, th- a number of European co-printing so those were my first other books of mine had been co-printed before and so I had experience and I had familiarity and I was able to work with a, a printer here in Spain to um to to co-print um, which helps bring the the costs down for everyone involved so that, that's something um also that's a nice way of you know different groups in different countries working together to make it possible for these stories to Happen. That was also a thing of you know one of the reasons that so many rights have sold is because one I have years and years of you know going to the book fair, selling rights, knowing different players, both larger publishers and smaller publishers who might be interested, and also in in this case sometimes they're NGOs um, in different countries, Um, and because I knew how to do all of the publishing stuff, you know, an NGO was able to join us even if they don't normally know how to do the publishing side of things.
2: Um, wow,
0: that's, uh, yeah, makes me think again, how many hours of sleep do you get at night? But yeah, you do say <laughs> it. Yeah. Because so what I'm understanding is that you sold all those rights yourself.
1: I sold all of those rights myself. So mm. I mean, one of the things that I mentioned, I mentioned that I started going to Frankfurt in, in 1997. So those very first anthologies that I had been in um, were translated into German and published by Fischer Verlag, um, which is based in Frankfurt, where the Frankfurt Fair happens and stuff. I had published other uh you know anthologies of my own and other books when I started going to Frankfurt, but one of the things I did was because I was still very small, having a very small list of my own titles, I um, spoke to a number of independent uh either science fiction or LGBT publishers and I sold foreign rights for them at the Frankfurt Book Fair very mm, often these books were okay. things that um, were too small for other agents to be interested in you know I mean if I sold a seven hundred dollar deal or something like that um but there were there was a network of other LGBT or science fiction presses in a lot of other countries that were actively interested in this material, and you know so I was able to be both a bridge for that and also it gave me a bigger backlist uh, than my own titles. Until you know, I mean, now that I have 120 books, my own backlist is big enough. I don't I don't handle rights for anyone else at this point. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. you know, when I was starting, that was one way that I. Um, you know so i i used to sell rights for instance for firebrand so Alison and Bechdel, mm. who's best known for the dyke like to watch out for and um mm. and for uh fun home and things like that so i was mm. able to sell those early collections abroad um in spain in germany and various other countries um
0: right okay because,
1: because it was too small for most of the bigger agents to want to bother with uh a deal and you know with a lot of my own children's books, I have sort of shared custody with the publishers where I control, since I only write the text, they control the package. And we have a deal where if they sell rights, they get a higher percentage of the split. And if I sell okay. rights, I get a higher percentage of the split. And so I'll often be like, okay, I have a deal from Malta. Don't laugh, but this is the deal, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, a <laughs> life, it's a small country. So it's, mm,
0: um, you know... Oh, that's, uh that's but that's great that you've managed to work things out and everything seems to be working so like kind of organically it's uh i i yeah i really like that um and um and how about the the illustrator so you say that the the publisher owns the packaging so that includes the illustrator the illustrations then I'm so, it depends. so
1: for instance with the board oh. books elena braslinia mm-hmm. um, is a Latvian illustrator who's a friend of mine so she and i control the books directly so mm, in this case, okay also because we're very flexible um we're able to let them you know so i think for instance in switzerland the books were published in all four national languages uh, as two separate books but in a paperback format um with just a staple. So a very inexpensive format. Um, Mm -hmm. But instead of selling them, they wound up giving them away on international family equality day, which is in May. Mm -hmm. Um, So, which is also, it's fine. It's great. Um, And uh, you know, and when, when the publishers wanted to do the two in one version, Alina drew a new cover for them to be able to do that Mm -hmm. version as well. So, um, you know, uh, Alina knows how to do all of the, She's able to do all of the the files for the, right. the changes when we do the co-printing ourselves. Um, other times we sell the rights and they're produced by uh, the publisher directly, which is also wonderful. Um, at the beginning, she she was hand lettering. So the first co- co-printing we oh. did had six, um, six languages. It was Spanish, Catalan, Flemish, uh, Croatian, Czech, and Latvian. And she mm-hmm. actually hand lettered all of them. And then... Wow. I think the 2nd for co-printing, she also did that. And then after that, she made a font out of her handwriting, which actually has this too. So it's been much easier. Yeah. <laughs> I was
0: going to say for hand lettering for 33 different <laughs> countries, that's, uh, wow, that's, that's, that, that's a lot of work. Yeah. That so that's, it's fun. smart to have done the, yeah, to, to have created a font. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the Madrid Book Fair, which just ended, or is it still going on? It's still going. Um, it just, it's, it's still, just still going, going on. on. It, mm, yeah. Okay. Um, and you were there. Actually, I'm I'm going to interview another guest on the podcast soon, sometime um, next week, um, Ed Novotka of Publishers Weekly. And he was there, and you actually <laughs> mentioned that you, you both saw each other. Um, so what was so I'll be talking to him obviously also about the Madrid book fair I mean any book fair that is happening right now is just like whoa what is it like <laughs> to be actually in an in-person event and see other people from other countries um so um so I'd like to yeah ask you also what was it like what just to be out there and speak with people and see publisher stands and how many Yeah, was it? well visited was it um open air i'm assuming just any kind of information that you're <laughs> that you can give me is uh is very welcome
1: so the first thing is it was wonderful to be out i mean you know i've i've i'm only recently uh, had my second vaccine and uh, hadn't been out and about even just in the city let alone uh you know at a, a book fair or things like that so um the madrid book fair is normally held in the end of may beginning of june it's an outdoor fair held in the Retiro park um Mm. different than a fair like uh bologna or frankfurt or um you know it's it's more of a fair for readers to come so it's not so much an international fair of you know publishers from other parts of the world are there um you know ed one of the things that ed does aside from being the international uh editor for Publishers Weekly is he's very actively involved in the Publishers Weekly in Español, mm-hmm. which has been going on for yeah. 16 issues now. And so, um, you know, he was over working with uh, the PW and Español team on different things. And so I was able to meet with him while he was here. Um, mm. It's this year, things are slightly different because of the COVID um, regulations. So it is an outdoor fair, but they, they have very strict controls of how many people are allowed in um so that you know you can't have more than x number of people per density of the space that's allowed Mm. and um so but one of the amazing things is that there are these really long lines of people eager to go in and see books and buy books and see meet authors and get signatures and things like that and that's something Mm. that it was it was so heartening to see again um you know, I mean, one of the the curious things, the, the pandemic here in Spain, at least, was terrible for bookstores, many of which had to be closed. It was actually mm-hmm. very good for a lot of the independent publishers. So I think that um, many of the sort of more literary publishers, um, most of their readership, because they weren't able to spend money traveling or going out to restaurants or having nice wine or things like that, they bought a lot more books than they normally would. And so... Sales were up at a lot of the sort of indie bookstore, uh, indie book publishers, even if the booksellers had been having tremendous problems while they were closed during the lockdowns. And so, um, but it was amazing for me to be able to uh, to go around and see publishing friends who were, you know, very often working at the stands. I did meet a bunch of new uh, publishers or editors, which was also uh, helpful. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was actually, there was a graphic novel, uh, editor who I met and I'm, I'm translating for a British publisher one of the, her recent books and there was something I needed to ask the author and so I was able to introduce myself and she put us in mm. touch so that I could um, there were some quotes that were originally in English and rather than translating them back into English I'm able to get the original quotes uh, without you know but that was something that I just needed the author to, to tell me where they are or just send me the quotes uh, rather than do this detective work of of mm-hmm. uh, you know finding out yeah. of the you know three volumes of letters <laughs> with, <laughs> where these came from so yeah, um, yeah so that was helpful and um so yeah it's been wonderful the the next fair i'll go to is actually libert which is the national spanish fair and that's more of mm-hmm. a kind of like the um you know more of a rights fair although it's it's yeah. more um It's a lot of distribution things like that, and Guadalajara is actually the the city of Guadalajara is the guest country for that this year. Mm. Colombia was the guest at the 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 Madrid Book Fair, which was also nice that there were a lot of books from Colombia. So I was able to at the Colombia stand buy some, some, especially some poetry books I had been looking forward to that. You know, while we're not traveling, uh, it was much harder for me to get access to. You know, they're not books that are distributed in Spain. So, Mm -hmm.
2: um,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. you know, as a as a reader, I was very happy with my my one visit that I made uh, over the weekend with Ed to the book fair. Yeah, Um,
0: and when is Lieber taking place? Is that
1: is always the week before Frankfurt. So Mm -hmm. I'll be attending Lieber, uh, especially Mm because it's in Madrid this year. It 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 shuttles Mm -hmm. between Madrid and Barcelona. So the years it's in Barcelona, I don't go, but the years it's in Madrid. I tend to go at least one day Mm. to, you know, swing by and see friends. Um, And then I will be in Frankfurt, which I'm very much looking forward to. I have not (laughs) been to Frankfurt since 1997 when I started going. So it's 20 many years (laughs) of (laughs) of,
0: of, uh,
1: continuous frankfurting, except last year when it didn't happen. So,
0: Mm -hmm,
1: um, yeah, I mean, to me, the, the book fairs there's also, there's a serendipity factor that happens. I mean, and this Mm -hmm. is something even just going to the Madrid book fair where um, you run into people that you didn't know you were going to, or that you may not have even known existed. You know, you run into someone, you know, and they, they introduce you to who they're with and, you know, maybe you run into them again at at the next fair and they introduce you to someone they're with and you wind up doing a project with that person or you, you know, so that sort of stuff, you know, I find that almost every year, some sort of project happens with people that I meet at the fair serendipitously differently than, um, you know, the meetings I I've set up beforehand with yeah. colleagues that I already work with or people that I'm approaching uh, for the first time. And, but we set up a meeting before the actual fair in order to, to discuss things. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, going to the fairs is always such an important thing, I think. Um, mm. And I mean, my fair life is generally Frankfurt, uh, Bologna, London often, um, you know, I mean, London book fair is very close, uh, but London Mm -hmm. is not as essential to me. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, it's mostly it's Frankfurt, Bologna and Guadalajara book fair because of the whole Spanish speaking world.
2: Yeah,
1: That's important. I also, one of the things I love about Guadalajara is that you have a rights fair from nine in the morning until 5.00 PM, but then from 5.00 PM to 9.00 PM, it's open to the public. So, you know, since I'm both buying and selling rights and also, uh, As an author and a translator, it's so wonderful to see so many readers come in and be so excited about these books, and it sort of reminds us of why we're doing this. You know, they're the Mm. reasons why. uh, You know, there there've been families in Guadalajara where their kids come and buy a book every year, so Mm -hmm. as they grow up, you know, they come back to see what my new book is, and so that's lovely.
0: (laughs) Mm, Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, and I think I think you and I met in frankfurt or at a dinner in frankfurt or in in london frankfurt Frankfurt, right that i think think it was amy spangler yes our dear friend who organized it yeah yeah and then guadalajara it's it's funny because i've well of course it's well it's funny and not funny because we it's such a big fair but i usually go there as well but we've never run into each other so we definitely have to see um it's next coordinate. time so, yeah. yeah next time definitely uh, definitely meet up there so what is your favorite book fair um if you have one well, it's
1: so i mean especially because i'm involved in so many different parts of the book industry the fairs are so yeah. important for different things um and one thing though i mean when i first started going to frankfurt back in the 90s i used to always say it took three years to make a deal so people would be happy mm-hmm. to meet you the first year when you came back, they said, Oh, you're serious? We can talk business now. <laughs> the third year we used to sign contracts. I mean, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm from back so in the day. So true. <laughs> we had to sign contracts at the fairs yeah. and things like that. And yeah. uh, I mean, now everything's done, you know, with uh, DocuSign or other online yeah. uh, virtual things. But, um, but you know, I mean, a couple of years ago, I remember it, it took because, because we see each other, very often we would meet at other fairs uh, that got telescoped. So I would, you know, just as an example, there was one publisher in Brazil and I'd seen their books for a long time. I had taken their catalogs at other fairs and we'd never managed to meet uh, or arrange a meeting. And one Frankfurt, I'm walking past the stand and the editor's sitting by herself. And I said, can I introduce myself? Are you busy? And she said, I'm waiting for my meeting. But if they're late until they show up, you can sit down. Mm. And so I, I sat down, I introduced myself. I gave them my rights catalog of my kids' books. And um uh, she said this is all very interesting. here I'm only selling, but let's make a meet plan to meet at Bologna, and we'll talk again. so we met at Bologna. I showed new projects uh in Frankfurt. She made an offer, and we signed the contracts in Guadalajara so you know mm. what what used to take three years took like eighteen months um <laughs> but but it was you know so much depends on the multiple uh the multiple meets yeah so this is something where like. A lot of people in the translation industry, the literary translators, they get very frustrating with pitching, because a lot of mm. times they think of pitching as just pitching the one book that they're so passionate about. And I try and tell them that pitching is about the editorial relationship, where you're getting to learn the taste of the editors and say, I liked this, but not this about this book. And then you can say, oh, well, I have another project that's more like that part that you like, or it may be mm. down the line. You know what I mean? So for me, it's knowing you know, you don't just bombard everyone with all of your projects all the time. It's knowing specifically what an editor's taste is. And that's something Mm. you only cultivate over time. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's an editor in New York where I had met her at, I think at book expo eight years ago. Um, We've known each other all this time and I had never pitched a book until early this spring when um, a new imprint was announced and I pitched her a book and I said, this is something that I think you're really going to like. And she bought it three hours later. You know, Mm -hmm. she made an offer, fell in love with it, um, Mm -hmm. and the book is coming out next year. So it's a thing of knowing this was the perfect book for this particular editor, and until I had that book, I didn't bother her with other things. You know, and so when I found the book, she was, you know, absolutely passionate about the book, and it was a difficult book. You know, it took me Mm -hmm. a long time to find a publisher who was interested in it, but it's like the perfect um, matchmaking
0: Mhm. Um, so yeah, I always say and I don't I I don't know if there's an English equivalent of the the French expression it's a, I always say it's c'est un travail de longue haleine. So it's like a it takes a long breath to mm-hmm. <laughs> to um yeah, to to find the right publisher for the right project. And um yeah, I agree with you. It's it's definitely um, it's about the relationships before the pitching, and um, even now. I mean, I guess with as you mentioned, everything goes digitally. Also, the sending of PDFs, and uh, but pef- before all that, and I that was even before my time um, in in Frankfurt. The actual, you know, the book exchanges happened during Frankfurt or or following Frankfurt. Whereas now, I thought I think it's very interesting. I, things have shifted to the weeks prior to frankfurt um maybe this is also more um more the adult trade um segment maybe it's different for children's books i i don't know because i'm not very familiar with uh with that with that world and with those connections but um but yeah so it's it's so the, the meetings in frankfurt have become even less about specific i mean it's still about pitching but it really is about just yeah See what everybody is up to.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: My adult
1: titles, for instance, I don't need to wait until Frankfurt to sell them. I think that with the children's books, there is some level of the visual. You know, I mean, yeah, you're right. With still, illustrations. Uh, yeah. Still, mm-hmm. uh, editors fall in love with an artist's portfolio and you know, that does happen. And I mean it's much harder being a an author at uh, Bologna differently than uh, being than than an illustrator. I mean it's much easier for illustrators to um to travel, you know, and I think especially for picture books and board books, um, a lot of that, it sells on the art before the story is even read, Um, you know, so as an Mm, author, there's certain editors that I'm just uh, very fond of, even if we've not always managed to work together, Uh, there are some editors who actually sat down and read the entire story of a dummy that I brought to Bologna and those editors Mm -hmm. just had a special place in my heart. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The other thing is editors move around and sometimes what they're looking for from house to house changes. And, you know, these long relationships, sometimes it's, you work with a one house and the assistant moves somewhere else and you do a project with them. Um, yeah, so it's, it's all very different. Um, I don't know. Do I have a favorite house? They're, they're all very different. Um, one thing, I mean, just mentioning translation, one thing I think that's amazing for the Guadalajara Book Fair is that they um, give three nights free hotel to translators. They really understand the Oh, trends. I didn't know that. Hmm. are potential key po- parts in, in uh, literature trend moving around the world. So, I mean, not only do they have their editorial fellowships, but um, they really make it easy for translators to... Come to find work, to meet publishers, meet authors, um, go back to their countries, and say, you know, because a lot of times it's it's translator led that yeah. we do things. So um, mm-hmm. uh,
0: yeah, that's true. Oh, that's I, wonderful. Big up for the Guadalajara Book Fair, then.
2: Each each fair has yeah. its own unique
1: yeah. uh, peculiarities, but I mean, Guadalajara has has a very special a special something that's very different. Um, I mean, it's also, it's huge. It's, you know, 700,000 people Mm -hmm. uh, because it's a mixed fair of both the rights fair and uh, a fair for the public.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So, yeah, I mean, in that case, it's kind of like the Madrid book fair combined with something like Bologna or Frankfurt, um, both in one. So, um, and especially since Spanish is one of the languages I work into and out of, it's an important fair. Very often all of the Latin American publishers who can't afford necessarily to come to Europe Will all be at the at the fair because they'll also be selling their books in Mexico to a Mexican audience, and so um, it's it's a definite uh, necessary fair for for many publishers.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I I really can't wait to to go there again to go back there. Um, so. I, here's a question that I, I always ask uh, my my guests, and I'm sure there's going to be tons that come up in your mind, but do you have any um, a short list of books that you've read recently <laughs> and um, besides the ones that you're involved with professionally, um, which ones would you recommend to our listeners and why? Um, it's probably a tough question for you. you read, <laughs> so <much.
1: laughs> I do read so much You um, read so much one author who I'm absolutely in love with lately is a writer named Alyssa Cole. And mm-hmm. she has, um, she writes, uh, thrillers, romance novels and historicals. She has one series though, called the runaway Royals, which I just absolutely adore. They are, um, smart, fun, sexy, geeky, uh, politically savvy books. Um, and I think they're just wonderful. Um, a uh, sort of literary crime book that i read that i was really blown away with recently was alex pavesi's eight detectives um mm-hmm. which has just twist after twist um and was just really really adroitly uh handled i guess so mm-hmm. um you know those those are two that come to mind uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: most uh most quickly, I guess.
0: Okay, well, thank you. Um, so, yeah, we're we're really um, gone beyond actually uh, the the time that I had allocated. So, thank you for for sitting with me and being so um, you know open about your experiences. I I really appreciate it. Before we wrap it up, is there anything that you'd like to mention here um, that I that I missed in my questions?
1: Um, I guess looking forward to seeing you again at a fair and listeners yes. as well, and um, you
2: know.
1: <laughs> we'll be reading until then and after then. And and I guess the reading is the, for me, the important part.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. I think we'll, we're going to change the episode logo to reader Lauren Schimmel. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, really. Thank you so much for your time. And um, yeah, definitely looking forward to seeing you in in Frankfurt. I'll be uh, at the agent center, but probably also walking around. And um, yeah, until then, take care and enjoy the Lieber Book Fair as well. And um, yeah, we'll speak to you soon.
1: Okay. Ciao, ciao.
0: Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Makebooks Travel Podcast. I hope you had a good time and learned a thing or two. Check out the agency's website, Two twosiesagency.com, for more information and resources about the international publishing scene. Oh, and if you liked what you heard, please leave a positive review. Thank you. Merci et à la prochaine.